Hey, this is Jim. I am recording again, back, and my sermon is ready. Uh, <laughs> back recording, I am really enjoying during this whole pandemic, uh, being locked down, uh, just sitting here, articulating thoughts, dictating into my phone, nothing in particular. I'm really enjoying the process. I'm going to keep it going. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so I, I heard yesterday, um, so there, there is a grocery store in my building, which has been extremely useful in the current situation. Um, it's a Safeway. And I heard yesterday that apparently somebody at a Safeway distribution center in the Bay Area apparently died of coronavirus of COVID-19. It kind of makes me a little bit, I'm not sure how they're going to handle that. I'm not sure if that, if they start testing other employees, it might turn out that they have to shut down the entire, that, that's what I'm, I'm worried about at this point. If, if grocery store supply chains, if, if the supply chains that bring us our food, if, if somehow those get if the, the pathogen finds its way into that and destabilizes that to the point where they can't operate anymore, I kind of wonder what we do next. I kind of wonder what the contingency plan would be there. Anyway, I think if, if, if Safeway happens to shut down, I, there's a few other grocery stores I could walk to. It's farther than I would like to walk right now, but I, I think most people have to go out and walk further or drive further than they would like to get groceries. I think it's it's weird that I have it's it's a weird situation that I happen to have a grocery store in my building. <clears throat> Very fortunate to have that. I'm hoping that remains you know, a stable situation, but but who knows? We have no idea what happens tomorrow. Everything's It's a good it's a good skill to have right now to be uncomfortable, or sorry, to be comfortable with uncertainty. It's not a good time to be uncomfortable if you don't know what's going to happen. I don't we don't know how this is going to play out. So yeah, I've been actually watching quite a bit of television. Um. I can only do that for so long. I, at some point, some part of me says you have to step away, but I've really been trying to watch things that are funny. I, I, I don't really feel like, I feel like there's enough drama, there's enough seriousness in the real world that if we're going to watch TV, it should probably be something on the other side of the scale. Like bring some levity to things. Um, I've also been watching a lot of um, old clips from the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson. That man is phenomenally funny. He knows how to carry on a conversation. Uh, he he knows how to come out and give a monologue. It's clearly he he's not just reading off of you know cue cards. 
he seems to be very present in the moment. He has a massive reservoir of knowledge to tap into, and he just knows how to basically handle any situation, anything that might come up. If nothing's coming up, he knows how to color it so that it sounds, it seems like there's something happening. Just the right measure of absurdity and like seriousness. Uh, and of, and of course it's, it's well known. I think he's popular on YouTube because he, he does know how to flirt with women. He's very, very good at that. Uh, but he's, he's an all around funny person. I've, I've been definitely his, his old clips from his show have been definitely keeping me entertained. I went back through 30 Rock recently. I, that's now, now on Amazon Prime. Um, I was very, I remember liking that show when it first came out. I, I completely forgot just how dense, well-written, and intelligent that show was. And it does hold up. Uh, it's, it's, it's just very, very quick. I think, I think that's the, the secret to comedy, the very rapid fire. You don't hold for any one particular joke. I, I think this is why old shows or any show that uses a, a laugh track, like they have a live studio audience and they clap or there's a reaction, you have to leave space for that. If, if the jokes don't land, then you just, just kind of have, if you're watching it much later and you don't get half the jokes, then there's a bunch of empty space that you, you just, your mind's going to let go somewhere else. You're, you're going to wander away from it mentally. So I think for something to hold up, it has to be pretty quick. You can't leave a lot of emptiness. Arrested Development did that also very well. It's like, just assume that some jokes are not going to land with people because they don't get them. Don't dwell on them. Just, just assume, put enough in there so that it's, it's, there's enough material uh, the average person would get. Um, think that, think that works. Just, you know, keep, keep moving. Anyway, yeah. Um, so we're talking about old TV shows. Um, I would say this, this has actually been a useful time. This whole world kind of sheltered and I have been, I left my job just before the pandemic broke out. Uh, so I'm now unemployed. It was by choice. I wasn't planning on remaining in isolation uh, between my last job and whatever my next job might be, but I am taking the time to kind of reflect on myself. It has, it actually has forced me to be more introspective than I normally am. I spend a lot of time living in my head. But there, there, there are parts of my head which are themselves a distraction from me. My brain kind of knows how to deflect. Some people might go out and I don't, they, they get involved in some activity to avoid having to really reflect on themselves. 
it's very much the same thing for me, but it's just an internal process. And I do remember I, I watched an old TV show called Scrubs. Um, and there was an episode very, very early on where the main character, the doctor who, I don't remember the character's name, it was Zach Graff, and the nurse Carla in the show are kind of butting heads. Like the conflict is he's lorded it over her because of his own insecurities that he's the doctor and she's just a nurse. And she takes exception to this. At some point, she's addressing him down, yelling at him. And, you know, she says, your identity is so tied up in what you do. And that, that I remember, I do remember thinking at the time, this was 2005, thinking, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much me. I, I, whatever occupation I have, I tend to, I'm that first and then other things second, which I don't think is healthy. And sitting here reflecting on all of this right now, I kind of think that's, I think that is true. I am not working right now. Uh, I'm having some trouble doing, being productive, doing the kinds of things that I would do. Uh, in my line of work. And I, I think it's because some some part of me is saying that you've got to focus on something that is not that. They don't do not write code, do not learn about computers or whatever. Like focus your attention elsewhere. I really like that episode of the, the particular episode of Scrubs that I mentioned, I like the way it ended because there was this conflict between the two characters that drove it. And it, it ended without real closure. But the final scene is, I think, I, the main character, the doctor character, Zach Braff's doctor uh, character, you know, asks the nurse Carla a question and to try and like, I want your expertise. Please tell me what you would do here. And of course she sees through it. She knows it's just, He's trying to extend her olive branch to make peace. It's not a sincere question. She calls him on it. Uh, but she kind of says, well, thank you. I appreciate the effort. So it's not quite closure. It's just partial, like, okay, the story continues. You know, the conflict is not wrapped up. Closure is, I, I think, overrated. Although I, I suppose if you, I, I guess if you were a fan of The Sopranos and you watched that, you would probably vehemently disagree with that. A mental exercise I put myself in, I, I, I really enjoyed Lost. And to be honest, I, I did not dislike the ending. I didn't know what to make of the ending. I, I understood what happened when I saw it, but I didn't have an immediate gut reaction of I liked that or did not like it. I, I kind of just 
abstain from answering the question. I didn't, I didn't feel cheated, but it didn't feel like it was wonderful. But it, it was so, people had such strong reactions to it and such strong hatred for it. Even the, the people that understood what had happened in the narrative. That sometimes I will sit there and think, well, how, how could you have ended that differently in a way that wouldn't have disappointed people? One, one of the writers asked this question. He said, like, I've heard a lot of people say they hated the ending that I wrote. I think it was Damon Lindelof. But he said, I, I haven't heard anyone come forward and say, here's how it ought to have ended. Here's what would have been better. I honestly think the ending was fitting. If you have, I, I'm not going to make this a podcast about Lost. It's an old TV show. I, I think there's been enough people pontificating on their own intellectual depth by talking about saying, here's my opinion about this aspect of Lost. What was the island? I think the island was an in-joke in the writer's room. I think the island was meant to refer to the narrative, the story, the, the fictional setting for the characters on the island. So why did Boone die? It was a sacrifice that the island demanded. I think what the writers are basically saying to us without saying it is, this is what's going to happen in the story. And we don't have to give you a reason as to why we are doing this. This is what the story is going to be, and you are going to accept it, and do not ask us why. <laughs> I think that the island can be explained. Everything, every reference to the island was that. The, some of the characters end up off the island. They have to go back. Because they left the story. The story couldn't continue without them. It's just a MacGuffin. It was it was a, a plot device that they could just use to explain things without having to explain them. Whenever they had to wave their hands and say, "This is what's going. This is what you're getting," that was that 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 was their tool for doing that. That's my guess. I have no idea if that's true or not. If it is, I think it's hilarious. Personally, I think that is the case, and I, I find it very, very funny. If I were, if I were writing a, a, a TV show and it had a big following like Lost, I would really, I don't know, what you would hear from people has got to be absolute madness. The, end, the ending of Lost and the reaction to it is a case in point. Uh, I don't know what makes people think they're entitled to any one particular kind of thing. But anyway, I, I do think the ending, in its ambiguity and its lack of closure and lack of explanation, uh, was actually fitting. I think it, I think it was fitting in that sense, in the fact that it was kind of quasi-religious without committing to any particular religious faith. That was all present throughout there. There was a whole bunch of allusions to various religious mythologies. The fact that it ended with a kind of religious 
uh, idea, the fact that it used a religious utility um, to end itself. I, I, I don't see why that was so controversial. It wasn't out of line, as far as I could tell. Yeah. You should rest. Just be grateful you're alive. <laughs> Don't overthink it. <clears throat> yeah, I actually looked into, I'm not going to make this all about lost or religion, but I, I looked into the story that there's a scene in, in, in season two where the character Echo, Mr. Echo, is talking to John Locke. For those of you that have seen it, it's the We Found a Book speech. Essentially, Mr. Echo has this book that he wants to give to John Locke, and he, he doesn't just give it to him. He, of course, gives this long-winded speech about the history of uh, the Torah being uncovered during the reign of King Josiah. And the story that he's talking about is in 2 Kings uh, 22 and 23. And it, I, for those of you who are kind of interested in religious history, I find this passage, if you go read it, it's very fascinating. Um, because essentially it's during the reign of King Josiah. It's when he's 18 years old, I think. He sends a priest, one of the priests of the temple, to uh, get money from, I think, the temple, which is in ruins. And he ends up uncovering uh, one of the books of Moses, or maybe a few books of Moses. It's not really clear, but essentially it is the Torah, or some portion of the Torah, the Mosaic Law. Which, if you, it's very, very clear reading it that nobody's heard of this. Like the priest finds it and takes it to King Josiah. King Josiah says, oh my gosh, this is, after he hears it read to him, he says, surely this is, this is the accurate word of God. And it, it says that they've, they've been worshiping false gods in the temple. The, the, the neighboring tribes of uh, the, the Moabites, the Amorites. Uh, like one other one I can't recall, but essentially those gods of the neighboring tribes, there are statues in the temple uh, that people are worshiping. Not Yahweh, not the God of the Israelites. And According to the text, these false idols were constructed in the temple by King Solomon, the son of David. And the, the narrative says, uh, okay, so King Josiah hears this Torah, says, we, well, go to a prophetess named, let's say, Halkia? Forget her name, but essentially that's the first move. After he hears the Torah, they go to a prophetess figure out what she has to say about it. 
Okay. So she says, yeah, this actually is the word of God. Um, you guys should really be following this. And, you know, King Josiah is, he may have been lost for most of his reign. He may have, have led under the guise of false gods, but he'll be okay because he discovered it before it was too late for him. But, but the narrative is very, very clear that apparently there has not been an observance of Passover since the age of judges, like five or 600 years prior to this. And this is about 620 AD, or sorry, 620 BC. This is obviously before um, year zero. Uh, and apparently nobody had observed the Mosaic law, like no king had practiced it in the previous 300 years. It says all this. So apparently it's very odd to me. It, if, you, if you read it, there, there's no way they could have made it any less ambiguous that for a matter of hundreds of years, nobody knew who Moses was. Nobody knew what the Torah was. Uh, and these ideas were just not, they were worshiping false gods. They're worshiping maybe Yahweh, but also the gods of the neighboring tribes. And this happened during the reign of King David and during King Solomon. Solomon built the false idols in the temple. I, I, I don't know how to square this exactly. Um, it, it's, it sounds, if you, if you go by the literal interpretation of this text, it sounds like the Israelites got to the promised land, promptly forgot about Moses and the Exodus, that whole thing, and just descended almost immediately into worshiping the, the gods of the, the pagan gods of the tribes around Canaan. And it wasn't until a few hundred years later during this King Josiah that somebody uncovered the Mosaic law and they said, oh, that we, this should probably be what we take seriously. And the text itself says that King Josiah reigned for a bit, but after him, like, people went back to worshiping false gods. Like, whatever Josiah did was undone after his reign was over. And it lasted until the Babylonian exile about 50 years later. And um, Nebuchadnezzar comes from Babylon and destroys the temple and enslaves the Jewish people. And uh, I, I think that it's, it's in exile where they say, yeah, this happened to us because we got away from the law of Moses. Like that must be the explanation. But the fact that this is in there I, is absolutely mind boggling to me. I, I don't, I've never asked anyone who's Jewish or Christian about it, but I, I would like to know exactly what they make of this. It may have been why it was, this passage was included in this scene in Lost. If you go back and read that, it's a very, it's very curious. Of course, Echo says, you know, Josiah was a good king, therefore he chose not to. They, they emphasize, they emphasize it in a way that would not offend anyone who was religious. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah, lost.
Yeah. So I've never figured out how it could end. How it could have ended in a way that was better. I do like that exercise, though. Like I do like the idea of crafting stories. From a very young age, I fancied myself being a novelist someday. I wanted to be a writer. I felt that way until I realized what life as a writer entails. It's the life of an artist. You could, you could do it, but you're very unlikely to be successful unless you're extremely good, extremely persistent, and extremely lucky. You could do everything right your entire life, and you, you may not be guaranteed of breaking through and having anyone read you, really. It's the, it's the purview of the artist to labor in obscurity for most of their lives. So I, I have this kind of instinct. I'm always kind of looking around at people, like, how would this person be a character? What would be an interesting premise for a story? Once you have that, well, how would it play out? And a part of part of the exercise is that if there's if there's a TV show or a movie or something that is partially good, uh, like some people felt Lost was, then how would you rewrite the portion that you did not like? Another tactic I find interesting to toy with is, I remember I was talking with a friend of mine uh, and he was saying he would like to write, it's kind of jokingly saying you, you could write American Psycho. Uh, the Brett Easton Ellis novel, but set it in Silicon Valley now. And I, I was, I was kind of like, yeah, that, that's an interesting idea. I've actually thought about that before. I've thought about doing that seriously. Of course, he was like, well, I was kidding. He was like, you shouldn't do that because that would be derivative. And I was like, well, that's, the, I, I agree with that as well. That's not quite what I mean. I don't mean you completely copy the character of Patrick Bateman uh, and just put him in Silicon Valley and tell the same story. We have this unreliable narrator who is imagining committing horrible murders in his head. But it really just has some message about how unhealthy thought processes are in some individuals in our society. I guess I don't want to dissect American Psycho, but the point is, I think you can strip down anything to its barest point and construct a completely new story. So if you do have somebody uh, who is, well, let's think about like Patrick Bateman. So he happens to be on Wall Street, but essentially he's a character who has no real values and his only compass is trying to do the thing that lets him fit in, lets him do the trendy thing, lets him have status, lets him look successful. He's obsessed with how he looks. Very concerned with presentation, presentation over substance. 
So I, I think the question was, let's imagine you have an engineer in Silicon Valley, somebody who works in tech, maybe not an engineer, but they, they found their way to this area of the country because they just, it seems like the trendy thing to do. And they really don't like it. The fact that they're doing it is kind of soul destroying for them because they really don't like the work and they do not like the people around them, but they have to pretend to like them. Just the notion of somebody who's in an environment, they're there for their own image reasons. They're, they're overly concerned about how they come across to others. What would that story be? A slightly less disturbing example would be uh, Dostoevsky. Um, I remember hearing that uh, Dostoevsky was at some point about to be executed. He was put on his knees and it was basically just a matter of minutes before somebody was going to put a gun to his head and he was going to be killed. And in that moment, he looked up the sky or if he looked up and saw like, I think a tree, he saw something just very, very simple. And he thought, that is a beautiful thing. Just the simple thing I've looked at. He's like, right now in my state of mind, knowing I'm about to die, I can just appreciate this simple thing for its beauty and just be happy that I have a chance to sit here and look upon that. And he thought, what if somebody, what if that was somebody's whole personality? Somebody were just happy to be alive and they were happy to talk to people. Um, they're just content with everything. They have no discernment about what is good or bad. They, they don't exercise that. They just, they just go through like happy to be. And he kind of thought, okay, well, such a person would be happy. Certainly they'd be happy. They'd go through their lives feeling very happy. But how would other people regard that person? They would, they would think he was simple and completely stupid. This, I was told, was the whole premise, like the setup for his, his book, The Idiot. The main character in The Idiot is somebody who is very simple is very happy and it's kind of how other people are using him uh it, but that's basically his story i haven't read it I, I, another example would be crime and punishment the character of raskalnikov he thinks he wants to be a conqueror he thinks that to to get respect you you must destroy people so he thinks that what Napoleon did militarily, uh, he could do in his own life personally, and that this will satisfy him. He'll feel good about it. Um, there, there are a lot of themes here, but ultimately it comes down to he, he kills somebody and he, he's anguished with the guilt of having done this. One of the takeaways here, I think, 
is that morality is innate to human beings. Sociopaths and psychopaths notwithstanding. So I, that's another idea. Let's say you, you start with morality is innate to human beings. And it doesn't necessarily come from divine revelation. What is the story you would write around that? You start with something like the most simplest kernel of an idea and try and embellish it in a different way. I certainly don't think that could, I guess that is derivative, but I don't see how you could not be derivative past a certain point being that reductive. Anyway, to be honest, I, I like thinking about those kinds of things. I like toying around with how would you write a story that has the same theme or this same very generalized, redu reduced premise. Um, but I've never actually come up with a story that I like enough to want to write from that. I guess certain elements um, occur to me. Uh, yeah, but, but writing. I think it was it was originally Breaking Bad. Like when that ended, that was a very emotional thing. And not just for me, but for everyone I talked to, everyone online. It seemed like it was a very, very effective ending. And it closed the story perfectly. And that's when I really, prior to that, I think I had just watched movies it's like you, I, I could tell when something was well written and I liked it. Um, but I, I, ne I never felt the inclination to figure out why. Are there elements to story that would make something good and elements that could be missing that make something bad? I really started paying attention after that. Like what, what makes a good story good, a good movie good? Um, like there's a craft to it, not just you can you just sit down and write. When I, yeah, when I when I was very very young, I remember starting to read Stephen King, thinking, yeah, I want to be a novelist, I want to be a writer. Um, so of course I'm trying to come up with the most creative monster, like just some crazy situation that would be really interesting, or some premise for somebody killing people, something dark and disturbed that you could hang a story on. If, if you go back and re I read Stephen King now, I see why people like Stephen King. People come to him for the voice it's because he does know how to construct characters that are believable and real and relatable. And yeah, maybe they happen to be dealing with a, a rabid dog or psychic supernatural powers or some evil clown, something. That, that's, that's not what makes the story. But of course, I was in middle school. I'm thinking, I gotta come up with some clever plot. You just write stuff around it and it all works itself out. Typical na naivety. I, I think back to when I first started learning how to program just sitting around like 
let's figure out what kind of website we can build. So this is, the, this is like 2005, 2006. Like Facebook has just come on the scene. Like people are starting to really take Amazon seriously. Like it seems like it's going to become profitable. It was Google had just IPO'd a couple of years before. And it was like, okay, well, if you know how to program, you, you could probably build something, put it out there. And if it, if it has a niche, an audience, it could be successful. The, the opportunity very much felt like it was there. It wasn't as though things had consolidated quite as much as they are now. It seems like the, the social networks we have are pretty much entrenched. They're large enough that if competitors emerged, they would just acquire them or attack them in some way. E-commerce is not, you start your own e-commerce site, you just, everybody buys and sells on Amazon. But I, I do remember sitting around brain, when there was this beacon of hope, like you could start something and it wouldn't be, it would be easier to do that online. It would be less of a fight, less work to establish yourself online than it would be to do anything offline. I think the two are more equitable now, but at the time when it seemed like it was possible, just sitting around trying to think of, okay, we have this business idea, now we need a name. I don't know how much time I wasted sitting around trying to come up with a good name. Like the dot-com has to be available, has to be a good name, it has to sound good. I probably spent 80% of my time trying to think of uh, names for things, names for ideas, and 20% of my time actually coding up anything for them. That's probably an exaggeration, but I don't know by how much. There's a problem in programming too. I, I, when I'm programming, I've had so many conversations about this with people. You're, you're trying to like develop a library or a module or a method or something. You're, you're doing some piece of coding, writing a code base, and you're trying to think about what to call something. How, how do you name things so that it's obvious what they do without being hyper-specific? Yeah, it's, it's an old joke. It's like one of the hard parts of computer sciences naming stuff. But yeah, Rose by any other name. Um, oh man, and for all the emphasis on naming too, I don't think I ever spent any time learning what distinguished a good name from a bad name. Oh, well, there was one project I worked on with somebody uh, was basically like the whole find a job market. I was working with somebody who had the idea for kind of like monster.com meets MySpace. Like you could create a profile for yourself, a professional profile, be your professional presence online. You can connect with people and there would be job postings on there. Essentially, it was like LinkedIn. Um, 
I don't even think LinkedIn had launched at that time yet. Uh, so it was, it, it seemed like a novel idea that had potential. I think it could have been made to work if either of us had known what the hell we were doing or had, you know, been more well connected. Uh, yeah, it was, it was obviously a solid idea because somebody made it work, but it was not going to be us. The name of this that we settled on was work to. I, 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 that's, there's some anti-lesson in branding there. Such an awful name. I, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, when I sit around thinking about ideas now, brainstorming business ideas, I don't care so much about the name. The name's important. I try to come up with a name that doesn't suck. What I'm much more interested in is in design. I do remember try taking a, like an online design course a few years ago, like just studying up on, apparently there's, there's different psychological meaning, different fonts will have a different impression on people. They will make people associate something as being credible or not in the domain that they're operating in. So if you're, I, if you're a law firm, for example, and you, you want to use a certain kind of font that says, uh, some fonts will say very, ex, very expertise, very conservative, solid. If you use some more silly font, people, people are going to think you lack credibility. But of course, if you want the silly, if you're a, uh, a children's museum, for example, I guess you're trying to appeal to the parents. You want to make the parents think this is a good place. You want to, I guess you want to seem safe, secure. It's a safe space for kids. If it's a website for kids, then you probably want the silliest possible thing to appeal directly to them. But the choice of colors, choice of, of logo, what a symbol you might use, choice of font, how these things all get matched and how they come together and the impression that they have on people. This is such a, I know nothing about this. And whenever I sit down to try and do it, it is almost impossible for me to know where to even start. Or if I, if I do know where to start, if I throw some text, like when I was trying to, for this podcast, choose a background image and a name and to put the name onto the background image, I, 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 I wasn't even sure where you could throw something together, pick a font color, pick a font, put the name onto one of the images in a way that you kind of like it. But I don't even, I don't know where to go. I can't look at that and say, that's not right because I need to go this direction or that direction. You know, I don't know how to evolve it and iterate it to where it needs to go. I'm not even sure where to begin learning about that. Like before I left my job, I, I did ask one of our designers, you know, what would you, where would you go to start learning these sorts of things? I, I, she, I don't know if this was a polite deflection of the question or if she was just like, don't even try, man. But, but she pointed me to a, a website where you could go get things that were already put together for you appropriate for different. So something that already has a logo and a, a color scheme 
the font, all of that's just kind of put together for you. You can just pick these things that have already been pre-assembled stock uh, for people to use. So I, you know, it kind of, it was an answer, kind of an answer to the question. It was um, something of a time saver, I guess. Politely saying, don't go down that rabbit hole. You got to be careful how you ask those kinds of questions too. And you say like, so your line of work, how would somebody start to learn about that? You, you, there can kind of be a veiled insult in the question. Like, um, I, I hear a story that somebody, somebody who is a doctor, um, like a brain surgeon or a spinal surgeon, some very, very difficult line of medicine, you know, I was, was talking to Margaret Atwood at a party. And he said, like, you know, I've always wanted to be a writer. And maybe when I retire, I'll give that a try. And reputedly, she said back to him, like, oh, I've, I've always thought about retiring as a writer and trying to be a spinal surgeon or a brain surgeon. The implication being like, oh, yeah, you know, anybody could do your job. That has to drive you. If you're a writer, people come up to you and say, you know, I've always wanted to write. I've got this book in my head. It's either something you commit yourself to doing and you're doing it. Or you're not that thing. Something like that. Hell, I don't know. I got into books. I started off with TV. I was kind of thinking there might be some... Might be some value in talking about television because it's not that serious. The few podcasts I've recorded so far have been very, very serious, very grave. I'm a very serious person. If you're waiting for me to get to the jokes, you're listening to the wrong thing. I've also been watching Community. Community is was the first television show created by Dan Harmon, who is I think best known now for being the creator of the animated romp, uh, Rick and Morty. I didn't know how popular Rick and Morty was. A friend of mine showed me them in, I think we watched season two in Southern California. And I was like, this is very unusual, very interesting. But I never really got perspective on... I knew a couple of my friends liked it. Then I, I, I moved up to Silicon Valley um, about a year later. And it was like everybody was into Rick and Morty. Everybody knew about the show. Uh, it, it's, it's deservedly. It's very, very good. Uh, it, it's dark and funny, and um, but I've stopped still watching Community, which is Dan Harmon's first show. Very simple premise: bunch of a group of seven people you would not expect to be friends will just kind of form a study group at a community college. It's just how creative can you get with that premise? Like what absurd things can happen? It's it's very very well done. And very much like Rick and Morty, there's a lot of self-referential in-jokes that you would only get if you 
understood writing. There's this one episode where one of the characters makes jokes about like, uh, is this going to be a bottle episode? A couple lines later, like, yeah, we're doing a bottle episode. I didn't know what a bottle episode was. Apparently it's a, it's a, it's an episode of a TV show that you do. It's a very simplified form. It doesn't require a lot of extra sets. It's basically a scope down, but there's not a lot of, it focuses on the story or the characters or dialogue without having to put them in different situations that would require constructing new sets, having them go new places, scout new locations. It's like you kind of learn about these little, the argot of, of writing uh, from what the characters are saying. It's kind of a self-referential way. It breaks the fourth wall in that way. I like that. I like that because I, I like learning what those things are. Uh, and yeah, yeah the community and Rick and Morty does it very, it's also very, very funny. It, it's not some, you know, self-referential, uh, making allusions to writing all the time. It, it's a very well done show so far. I'm in the middle of season three, I believe. Uh, Chevy Chase is in it as the token old guy. I have not seen him in anything in a very long time. Uh, yeah. I don't think I've seen much that Chevy Chase was in. I don't make a habit of watching old movies. I honestly don't care much for old movies. I'm somebody who tries to appreciate things that came before me. I, I do appreciate that there's, there are young people who kind of look at something and they say, well, no thanks, grandpa. That is, that was made 10 years before I was born. Of course it's culturally irrelevant. And of course it has no appeal to me whatsoever. I don't care. Give me Instagram. But I, I do try and at least be aware of what came before me and try and appreciate it where I can. I, I, I think, I, I think old movies are just old. I think that they're, they are speaking to a generation that hadn't quite figured it out yet. There's so much space in old movies. Um, like nothing happens. And I, I, I don't think it's just because I'm MTV generation or I'm, I'm, my brain has been scrambled by social media. Um, I, I think if you're looking back to the way Hollywood used to make movies in the 1960s and you're saying, well, movies should be like this again, you're, you're just wrong. Movies would not be better if we went back and started making them like that again. It's, we're, we're evolving the medium in, in a good way. And I, I, you could get confused, I think, because there are more movies out there now than there ever been, just because the process of movie making is so accessible to everyone. There is a lot of garbage. 
I think it might be, it was, it used to be much more difficult to create a film. And what you got was generally good. I'm not saying there weren't terrible movies made. I'm sure that there, there probably were. These are the ones I don't know about. The, the bad movies that came out in the 50s and 60s, my parents' generation, the, the ones they went to see, but I've never heard about and they have forgotten about because they were just so awful. You know, we, we know Night of the Hunter, but for every Night of the Hunter, who knows how many terrible flicks there were. I would guess the ratio is higher now. Like it, there's probably more terrible films to good ones. I don't know. I don't even know why I'm asking this question. Yeah, so, yeah, design. How did I get here? I don't remember I sat next to somebody on a plane. We were talking about writing, the writing process, being a writer. And she was saying, like, there's, she once had a professor tell her, there's no such thing as writer's block. The professor said, basically, writers have two modes, input and output. I don't know if you have to be in one or the other, but if, you, if you're trying to write, if you're trying to force yourself into output mode and nothing is coming, it, it just means you're, you need inspiration. You need to start reading and consuming. This is part of the reason that I'm... It's part of the reason that I'm trying to like do this, let's record stuff, let's just talk through stuff and get it out in recorded form. I typically write, but I, I have trouble. First of all, I don't want to sit down at a computer and just stare at a screen. And there are, there's ideas in my head that I just want to get out. I don't want to spend a lot of time trying to structure the writing, the paragraphs, an entire blog post in a way that satisfies me just to get the ideas out. Something more freeform. It, it's I'm, I need a different output mode. I need some other way of getting things out. And I have actually tried, I've been having trouble reading a lot of things recently. I said, if I sit down to a book, I cannot concentrate. And if I try and write, it, things just don't flow that way either. So I think I'm trying this as a different output mode. I think the opposite is probably true. If, you, if you're trying to read, if you're trying to consume new information and it's just not, nothing's sticking, it might be that, that you're in output mode and you have things you need to get out and you cannot let new stuff in until you get what's in your head out. I think that's what's going on with me. I've mentioned this elsewhere, but I, I, I sat down to start recording notes to myself voice memos and I ended up doing it for seven hours the first day and I completely lost track of time I, I forgot to eat I, I, I completely just my focus was completely on doing this whole process and I, I don't know how long that holds up I think I should just keep doing it until 
probably I repeat myself inadvertently. I'll probably share some point about something. I'll, I'll, I'll tell the story about how law, I, I, here, I, I'm trying to figure out how laws should have ended. Like I'll, I'll repeat myself and I'll realize it after the fact. And I'll be like, okay, I've, I'm starting to double back on myself and repeat things without meaning to. That, that's probably the point at which I stop and just get back to, get back to, uh, yeah, starting to read again. I'm hyper-pragmatic too. I think you should probably consume ideas that are, you should be broad in terms of what you read. You should reach for a lot of different things. It used to be that I would just read about one particular subject and I would read whatever I could find on that subject, whether it was well-written, poorly written. I've learned that you kind of have to focus so if I choose to read a book about whatever, whatever it might be, you have to pick the one or two best books on that subject by the best people. I've never really, I've always avoided this heuristic, but I, I get emails almost every day from recruiters who are pinging me saying like, hey, do you, do you want a job? We need programmers, we need engineers. You wanna come work for us? And they're always like giving me bullet points about the company that they're representing, or the company they work for, you know, they're, they're funded, they have this many people. And they always say they were founded by X person, you know, so-and-so, who also founded this company. I never used to understand the latter point, like the funding, okay, I get it. Uh, you know, the potential, how many customers you have. That, that all made sense. I never understood why they, they bothered to put who the founder is into the, into the, into the, uh, the email. I, I kind of understand that now. I've had conversations with people in Silicon Valley who are like kind of on the prowl. They're looking for jobs. It seems to be one of the critical factors that people consider that I've never considered is, is who is running things, who's in charge of it. You're, you're kind of looking for someone, some person that's successful to hit your wagon to. It's, it's not so much the merits of the ideas, it's that there is, there's a personality that things congeal around. The PayPal mafia is very popular. People who founded, basically worked at PayPal um, or Elon Musk's company like X.com before they merged People that came out of that after they were they acquired, sold off, I forget how that ended, but people diffused from that into Silicon Valley. The companies that they started uh, have been very successful. Kind of like that's the top of the tree. And it seems to count for a lot. People want to go work for as close up to, the, to that hierarchy as you can get. That seems to be a selling point. I, I, I understand why now more. It's, it's the, the merits of an idea are less interesting and that there are just a few 
individuals who are very successful because they know how to conduct themselves. They know how to execute. That, that counts for way more than I have ever given it credit for. Yeah, so and when it comes to finding books, it's like you find the good writers, uh, the people who know the most about a subject, if, if possible, they're one and the same. And you read that book about a subject. That's where you start. Might sound obvious, but this hasn't always been the way I conduct myself. I've, I've often just looked for the book that sounds interesting. It's kind of obscure. It's kind of out of the way. This is, I think, another general question. I don't know how to answer, but it's the endless struggle, right? It's the, the question of when you're when you're a teenager, you're trying to figure out how do I fit into society, but how do I become my own person? You have to differentiate, but you have to like melt into the crowd. I, trying to strike that balance is, I guess, a lifelong undertaking. I don't think that's ever quite an answered question. The context changes as you get older. The question is how, how are you going to blend in and how are you going to stand out? And it's the same thing in taste. Like if you're gonna, how you conduct yourself at work, your approach to things has to be, it has to conform well enough that you're able to contribute in a meaningful way. But you have to be just so far off of center that you're actually breaking into new areas. You're, you're doing novel things that other people could not do. It's very difficult to do that well. For some people, it's difficult to do either one of those things. Some people are good at one or the other. I'm probably more good at doing what needs to be done. I think I was raised in such a way so as to say, you're going to go to college. The point of college is to acquire a useful skill and to put that skill into use in the job market for the rest of your life. I think the world might have changed since then. That's not necessarily bad advice. I think that's actually pretty good advice. I would give that advice to my kid now before I told them, go use college to figure out how to differentiate yourself, to figure out how you individually, who you are. But you, you can go figure out who you are. You can go establish who you are in relation to the rest of the world. You can get attuned to yourself without having to pay the price of college tuition. You don't have to go into debt uh, or spend the money to do that. There are better ways, there are, there are more entertaining ways, there are cheaper ways. It's just my opinion. I think there are people who seem to think that education in general is too much. Like colleges and universities are too much like trade schools and that they should not be such. There should be more emphasis on the humanities. I kind of appreciate that. 
because as much as I said, I'm just going to focus on getting a business degree. And I, I tried to like skim over everything else as much as possible. I, I, I am trying to like read philosophy now or read some of the classics of literature. And it, it's like, my brain is not the same. It's not as amenable to new ideas. They're, they don't have the force that they new ideas had when I was young, the persistence. So, so like getting them now, trying to immerse myself in liberal arts at the age of 37, it's, it's much different than it would have been if I had done it when I was in college. I kind of wish I had been more open to new things. I branched out more in the curriculum and not been so singularly focused. I guess it's a balance. It's all a balance, right? Everything in moderation, except for that phrase, everything in moderation. You should just never use that phrase because it's overused. It's not used in moderation. Yeah, I don't know. That's actually a question I keep answering too. It is, let's say you are going to go give a speech in front of people, like a, a group of high schoolers who are about to graduate or some high schoolers. You know, what, what exactly would you say to them? You can send them one message. You have some amount of time to talk. What do you think they would all benefit from knowing? It's more than just the question, what would your younger self have benefited from knowing? Because maybe that's just specific to you. But you have to kind of consider all these people that are going to go off into the world. You don't know where they're going to end up. You don't know who they are. You don't know what their interests are, what their interests will be. You don't know what life is going to throw at them. I guess the, I've never answered it this way, but I would say adaptability. I think you should remain adaptable. Figure out how to do that. I, the answer I came up with recently as I was thinking about this, what, what would you say to a bunch of high schoolers? Is to just let them know that, okay, you're going to believe some things now about the world. You should go out and explore as many ideas about the world when you are young as you possibly can. And I think when you're young, that's going to happen naturally. Make sure you don't just focus on yourself. Make sure you get as many perspectives from others as you possibly can while you are young. With the understanding, with the knowledge that as you get older, you're going to become less receptive to new ideas, like new things are not going to strike you quite as hard. And there will come a time, I don't know when this happens, but it seems to happen at some point for everyone, that you just end up, your, your mind closes, you end up down a cul-de-sac, that you're just, you're there. Whatever it is you believe, you believe that that is the thing that you use to guide yourself. Worldview, I would call this, for lack of a better word, may include religious beliefs, political beliefs, 
how you make sense of the world, the lenses through which you look at things and interpret them and understand them. You want to make sure that your mind does not close. You don't want to end up into a rut or a cul-de-sac too early, too young. Don't lock yourself in when you're young, but understand that you're going to eventually be locked in by circumstances, just by your brain getting older. I think you can remain open to new ideas, even into old age. You can be a senior citizen who's still trying to understand things in a different way. But I think at some point you're more or less anchored to where you are. You end up somewhere. You can leave your rut. You'll you'll end up back in it. You can get out of the cul-de-sac, but you're going to come home to it ultimately in the end. I said, don't lock yourself down too early, too young, but be careful where you go and how, just know you're going to end up falling into a slot at some point. And when that happens, you're going to be there. I also heard a very interesting idea for, I think it was in the commentary uh, for the movie Fight Club. Edward Norton was talking about how there's there's a philosophy that I, I guess was in the film somehow. I don't remember how this ties in. But the notion that you should adopt it, like learn lessons from an instructor, find a teacher, a mentor, a sensei, and learn those lessons and learn them deeply. And then after that, learn the opposite. Learn to adopt the exact opposite position. You know, um, just kind of remain malleable. Be prepared to believe one thing one day. Be prepared to believe the exact opposite at some point down the future. And then get away from both of those and kind of see what happens. I don't remember how he explained it. That might even be an unfair way of phrasing it. I would say something similar, but I don't know how I would phrase that in a way that you got to be careful when you're talking to young people or talking to anyone, really. If you give people advice, that, that some people will misunderstand what you say, take it too literally. They won't, they won't quite get the, 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 just the spirit of what you're saying. But how you tell the story is very, very important. I, I don't know how you say it. you should believe one thing, then believe the opposite, and then just kind of clear your head and see what happens after that. To me, that, that seems very, very invaluable. I've kind of oscillated back and forth between being like extreme Democrat, extreme Republican in my life, and I've kind of just ended up somewhere in the middle. Because ideas from both sides kind of make sense to me when I'm not trying to be either one. I think that's healthy. Same is kind of true of religion. I stand somewhere between atheist and, you know, dedicated believer. Just try to try and straddle the middle line, or at least realize that if you're centered with yourself, what I've learned is that if I really am doing the advice from Hamlet, if I am to mine own self being true, I probably end up somewhere middle of the road. 
I, I never end up at either extreme. I kind of wonder if I force myself into that. You have to be extreme, at least in some dimensions of your life. That's probably also good advice. You have to be moderate in most respects, but carefully pick the aspects of your character that are going to be radical. In what way are you going to be extreme? Don't be in the middle of the bell curve in every possible way. Don't set out to be all averages. You know, have, have at least one or two outliers, at least, floating around. Where was I? I started off with television, and now I'm talking about this. Yeah, I was talking about community. But I don't know what else I've been watching. To be honest, I haven't been watching a whole lot of television. I, I, I think I'm like most people. I really hate the process of a TV show ends. It's like something that's six seasons long, and you you have it's just been a you, a large part of your life for a matter of weeks, and you suddenly have to like find something else. This is like dating. Like you, you, you have to like try the pilot episodes of a bunch of shows. You have to go through a bunch of crap that annoys you just to find something that you feel like, oh, this is good enough to stick out. And you never quite know how long to stick something out. Like you can watch, I, you watch the pilot, you're like, that was not very good. But if I think of the shows that I have watched and I have liked, the pilot episode was never very good. It's like, how long do you give something before you abandon it? It's, yeah, it's exactly like dating. You're never sure if you know or not. Yeah, I really don't. I do wonder what I'm doing too. I hate when I, whenever I get to that. If I get a TV show, if I get into a TV show and I, I feel like this is great, I have to watch this whole thing, and I do. Once it's over, I'm kind of like I'm relieved. I no longer feel like I have this time suck that I have to like devote some time to 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 get through figure out what happens to these characters or to be entertained. I, it's like, I feel, I always feel that looming, that shadow. I'm trying to watch a new show. Like, oh, let's check out Bosch. Let's check out Mr. Robot. Something. And as you're watching it, the first episode, you're like, this is good, but is it really good enough that I really want to commit? I don't know how many hours of my life over the next, like, is this really going to benefit me in any way? I have no idea. Same could be said for books, I suppose. Most of what I read is not applicable at all. It's just feeding my brain words. I hope that's doing something useful. <laughs> Might not be. I, I, I have no idea. I have been trying to think about what it was, what it, what it is that I, I want to write. I, there are some stories that occur to me 
and they sort of come together in my head over a period of a few weeks. Like I just the, the elements. You start off with something like one of the elements, and then something else, another element. You have a setting or an idea. And you think of an idea for a character, and you're like the, that character would go into that setting perfectly well. And then like another plot, uh, you know, device, another element comes. They, they slowly these things come together, and you kind of assemble them in a way, and you end up with an overall story that just makes sense. And it doesn't just make sense; it's like it's very interesting to you. So you get this; your brain is just feeding you these ideas. You know, it's again the. Uh, the unconscious feeding you these creative things, but it, things come together, they congeal and you're like, that's perfect. Like this is, this feels right to me. You know, it, it starts perfectly. It ends perfectly. There's a sensible middle characters are what they should be. All the right things happen. I don't know if you, if, if that's a good way to, as a writer, I don't know if you should feel comfortable with that. That's probably a good starting point. But I don't know if you, you should take that as, if you have the story mapped out in your head, you should follow that completely. Maybe that's just too obvious. If it comes together that easily, it's not going to challenge anyone or surprise anyone. But I, the, the idea I've been toying with recently, which I won't, I won't talk about at great length, because I'm still trying to figure it out, is I started with the idea of writing a horror movie, monster movie of some kind. I wasn't sure what, and I thought about, at the, at the time I was wandering around Yerba Buena Garden in San Francisco, and I was looking up at um, a skyscraper that was under construction and I thought, you know what, nobody, I, as far as I know, nobody has ever had a kind of a haunting, haunted house movie set in a very large building like that. It would be an interesting setting. Like, let's say you have some sort of demon or monster haunting a building that is really just a skeleton of steel. If, if people are walking around in hard hats, it's just a bunch of construction guys. I feel like you could, you could do something with that. If not that setting, then just a larger structure. Like, I feel like a, a, it, it, it seems like it's always, if there's a ghost that's haunting a place, it, it's a private residence, they're terrorizing some family. And it's always, it's always a territorial pissings match. Like it's a dispute over turf. The ghost is trying to scare them off so he can have the house to himself. It's just, it's so much of human conflict is centered around humans fighting humans for, over matters of like property. This land is my land. Get off of it. That we just, we just have extended this whole idea of conflict to, we have, we're doing it with metaphysical, spiritual, you know, a ghost beings. But it's never like it's never like a school. Like, I don't think I've I've seen many examples of like okay you have a 
a ghost that haunts a church. Somebody has to have done that. These, these things have to exist. I just haven't seen them because I don't watch a lot of uh, movies. I certainly don't watch a lot of horror or ghost stories. Uh, which is just yeah, like a larger structure. You, you never have a ghost haunting like a baseball stadium. But what would be scary about that? You're not, people there are never alone. It would have to be something really malevolent, capable of terrorizing a crowd. It could be scary in its own right. I guess you have to imagine in these public places, where do people end up alone that you could potentially unnerve them? Yeah, I guess it's hard to do. I, I like the idea of a skyscraper under construction because you can definitely tap into the fear of heights. Um, no matter who you are, no matter how many people are around you, there's still that fear. Huh. Yeah, like a football stadium, some large sports arena, like a concert. Yeah, it seems like most ghost stories just tap into people when they're alone. You're alone, you're helpless, you can't get help from outside. Anyway, have some ideas for it where you could go with that. I don't know if I would write it but I am thinking about what you could do with that idea. I do wonder what it's gonna be that survives our age. They, like we know who Charles Dickens is. We still, people still read Charles Dickens. People still read Shakespeare. Uh, we. People still generally know who Dostoevsky is. Like around the world in different eras, there there's still writers that people read even well past their time, like Edgar Allan Poe. <clears throat> and it maybe 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 it's obvious that maybe like Charles Dickens was in the Victorian age, he was the guy, and it was obvious, it was very very obvious that his work would persist. But I don't know. I, I would I. I don't know this, but I'd have to imagine there were other very popular writers in Dickens' time. How could you know for sure? Could you know? And I wonder what it is. Like we have so many like best-selling writers now. Like who? Which of these are still going to be read and relevant to people? Which ones are still people, people still going to be looking to two hundred years from now, three hundred years from now? terms of American literature, what's going to persist? Won't be it can't be more than like a few names. Like I feel like it has to be a very, very short, like a three or four at most. Most of it's just gonna pass from history. I, I've been I've been in those I've had those like low moods that you're kind of like having this existential crisis where you say nothing I do matters. I, yeah, I'm going to die in 50 years and then nobody's going to know who I was. I don't know why we get so sad about that. 
I don't know why we end up getting the way that's so emotionally overwhelming. I, there's a bunch of people who are not born yet living 200 years from now. Why, why would I care if they know who I am? Why, why would my brain ever want to? Why, why would I care? I don't know these people. If I'm being honest, I'd like to have relevancy in my own day, probably more than I do now. I'd like to be more connected with people now, but I, I, I don't, I don't think I want to be known beyond my life. I might like to contribute to things that outlast me. I think I would find meaning in that, but they don't have to, they don't have to be me and my name. I don't think I have that conceit anymore. But I do, I do wonder, I do wonder if the books will persist. People will still be reading books 300 years from now. So that people will still be talking about, some people will still be reading authors that are writing now. I don't know who that will be. I do wonder how long movies will persist the way they are now. Maybe they will persist. I mean, it, it's clear that vaudeville uh, would, you know, evolve. It could evolve to a, a more technical medium as technology advances. I can't imagine where movies could go. Like technology goes someplace else, so that movies in their current form, just digital things we watch on screens, those are just no longer created. Like people, it's just an outmoded art form. Yeah, hard to know what, what could replace it, but I don't think anybody can see technology and where it goes. I don't know. I guess there's still people who perform plays live. Vaudeville's a dead art form, but people still do dramas. Even though we do have TV. Maybe TV just becomes one... I don't know, old art form. People still go to movie theaters, but most people are not. Yeah, I mean, that, that's when movie theaters come back. It's when it becomes kind of a a retro. Like people going to people go to drive-ins now. It's like people listening to LPs now. The technology gets out, it gets replaced, becomes archaic, and it somehow comes back in vogue for some. I don't know, stylistic, cultural reason. It's like that used to be like, I think whoever created Bud Light, originally they were brewing beer for just their local community. They ended up becoming a mega conglomerate and it just becomes, oh, if you brew beer, you're working some blue collar job in a factory somewhere. It's not that interesting. Now it's like we have microbreweries. It's like jobs that would have been considered menial and blue collar are now creative and artisanal. It's like something millennials are embracing. I'm going to go be a butcher because you can create artisanal and sell artisanal meat. Be an artisanal coffee roaster. I, I think that's a good thing. Uh, people are, are embracing these lines of work, doing it in a novel way. For all its pretension, it definitely makes the world way more colorful and interesting than just 
having like the microbreweries with all different kinds of beer is way more interesting than just living in a world with nothing but Bud Light. Yeah. I, I love the creative. I love people being creative. I love the creative process. I'm really very excited in the middle of this pandemic to know people are inventing things and building things and coming up with ideas in their homes and garages right now. I think we're going to come out of this. We're going to, I, I really am looking forward to seeing what those are when they come to light. And I know it's going to happen. As cynical as I might be, I do know that the human potential for creativity is bottomless. And people have mounds of time to express that right now. It's going to be interesting when this ends. Anyway, uh, my microphone, headphones, AirPods, the thing I am speaking to you through is about to die. That is my signal to wrap this up. I would say thank you for Thank you for inviting me into your life to speak. I hope wherever you are, you and yours are happy and healthy. You're doing good, staying sane and physically active to the extent that you can during this crisis. Stay well. Be well. Uh, yeah, all the best. This is Jim signing off. Cheers.